Hello ladies and gentlemen, today I'm with Dr. Peter Fisher, a urologist with Summit Urology Group in Salt Lake City, Utah. Dr. Fisher, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Jake. I've waited a long time for this. <laughs> Love it. Uh, to start us off, could you get a, give us a quick background of yourself? You betcha. I'm a, a urologist. I practice in Salt Lake City. I've been in private practice urology now for 14 years, almost exactly. Uh, I um, trained at the University of Michigan. Uh, before that, I was medical school at the University of Utah. Before that, I was an undergrad at Brigham Young University. My major was actually in international relations and political science. Um, besides my urologic practice, I'm a, I have an awesome family. been married 25 years. And uh, my oldest son uh, is interested in medicine, and he's interviewing me in a podcast, which I think is amazing. <laughs> nice. Thanks. Beautiful background. Uh, sweet. So today we're going to dive into prostate cancer. Um, so to start us off, can you fill us in on some of the anatomy and physiology of the male reproductive system and, and urologic system that helps us familiarize ourselves with the world of prostate cancer? You bet. So the first thing that I tell patients about prostate disease is that the prostate gland is a reproductive organ. Um, that's why it's in the urologic specialty and nobody else uh, messes with prostate cancer besides, uh, or I should say with prostate disease besides urologists. There are lots of people that get involved with on a cancer stage. But prostate medicine is a urologist journey because the prostate gland is a reproductive organ. It makes proteins basically that aid in fertility. Without a prostate gland, a man could not get uh, a woman pregnant just because of the qualities of the proteins in the prostate that contribute to the ejaculate fluid. The, um, as far as how that works, the prostate gland is kind of the, the go-through point for all of the reproductive fluids for a man. So you have sperm, you have other proteins in the ejaculate fluid, uh, and this whole process runs through the prostate gland. The prostate itself is a collection of thousands of glands that all make secretory proteins. Uh, so as a secretory gland, the cancer that happens in the prostate is almost always um, an adenocarcinoma or a, or a cancer of glandular tissue. There are other rare types of prostate cancer that come along, but adenocarcinoma is by far the most common. And, uh, and the anatomy of the prostate, it sits in the very bottom of the abdominal cavity, actually kind of in the area behind or around the bowels called the retroperitoneum. If you think about where your bladder is down in the bottom of your body, right behind your pubic bone, even below that is the prostate gland. And uh, it's an interesting function that, uh, that how people were made, or well, mammals were made, that the prostate gland is both a reproductive gland and it's also part of the urethra, the channel where urine passes out of our, out of our bodies. And so the prostate gland is, is almost exclusively a male type organ. Uh, people will talk about the female prostate just being as some periurethral or, or 
around the urethra glandular tissue. Uh, but prostate as a gland is really just male males only. So prostate cancer becomes a, a male dominant cancer. It's the most prominent cancer in men uh, by a long shot. One in eight or one in nine men will develop prostate cancer in their lifetime. That's a, that's a pretty astounding statistic. And uh, because prostate cancer is so prevalent, it becomes uh, affecting almost everyone's lives. Almost everyone in the United States, because we have such great screening tools and medical history available to most Americans, that uh, it's hard to run into somebody that doesn't know a friend or a coworker or a family member who has or has been affected by prostate cancer. Another interesting thing about prostate cancer is the fact that it is generally super slow growing. A lot of cancers grow very quickly. So in my field, like bladder cancer, testicular cancer, these are cancers that need to be addressed in, in days or weeks very quickly. But prostate cancer is very slow growing, especially in its early phases. Uh, but as it gets uh, more aggressive late in the disease, then it becomes uh, a real threat and life-threatening to patients. And uh, that's why prostate cancer, we like to catch it early before it has a chance to spread. Once the disease is spread beyond the prostate, it becomes very difficult to cure and it can become a life-threatening problem. Hmm. Interesting. That was a really great breakdown of I was visualizing or trying my best to visualize that at first. And that is interesting that it's that's slow growing compared to uh, other cancers. Uh, what are some known risk factors of prostate cancer or to have that's, prostate cancer? Uh, the, the strongest risk factor for having prostate cancer is family history. Uh, I tell patients that more and more these days, cancer is a genetic disease that there are more and more genetic connections to cancer diseases of lots of organs. Prostate cancer is the same. So the general population has a one in eight or one in nine chance of developing prostate cancer. If you have a first degree male relative, so like my dad, your grandpa has prostate cancer. Because of that, my risk is actually higher. It's almost 30% or close to one in three. Uh, it's a dramatic improvement. I shouldn't say improvement, a dramatic increase of the risk of cancer. We don't know of any other outside source that, that increases one's risk of prostate cancer more than genetics. There have been some postulated theories that, that are true to an extent, like smoking increases the risk of prostate cancer. Obesity increases the risk of prostate cancer. Uh, in some cases, um, ethnicity increases prostate cancer risk. African-American men are more likely to develop prostate cancer uh, and, and other ethnicities fall into uh, other categories of risk. But by far the, the strongest risk is genetics. Okay, good, good to know. Uh, when it comes to age in prostate cancer, uh, is, do we see correlation uh, with older ages of, and then developing prostate cancer? What are the statistics? There? You bet. You bet. The, uh, basically, the older a man gets, the higher his risk of prostate cancer. So this is generally a disease of aging men. Uh, very unlikely to have prostate cancer in young men. 
the youngest man I've operated on with prostate cancer was 37 years old. And that's exceptionally young. Uh, The vast majority of men with prostate cancer experience um, experience disease at 50 years of age or older. Um, we, in fact, there most postulate that at, after age 80, that 50% of men after age 80 have prostate cancer. So half and half, but it, it's the disease, like I said, grows so slowly that we'd rarely treat a man in his eighties. Hmm. Uh, especially we, we wouldn't give him treatment that would be potentially threatening to his quality of life. He may have treatment that prolongs his life or slows the growth of disease, but we certainly don't want to do anything that would hurt his quality of life at 80 year old. Whereas a guy in his fifties, um, that has prostate cancer could die of that disease. Cause it's going to, he's going to live another 30 years. Uh, that's the man that we're willing to take a little more risk to have some temporary setback of prostate cancer treatment so that the disease can be eradicated in him so he can live on to his 80s without without a concern for prostate cancer death hmm, amazing so what what are the symptoms that we see uh, in patients with prostate cancer so again this is the, one of the great tricks and mysteries of prostate cancer is that typically if we wait to see signs of disease or symptoms from prostate cancer, it is almost always too late to cure the disease. Late stage prostate cancer disease, often the symptoms show up because of metastases or cancer that has spread to other areas. Most common areas for prostate cancer to spread are surrounding organs like the bladder or seminal vesicles or local lymph nodes in the pelvis or in the bones. And so we'll sometimes have men come to clinic with bony pain. They have like a stabbing pain in their, in their hip or their back that we found out to be pro- a prostate cancer metastatic lesion. And that's their first symptom that they ever had prostate cancer. Uh, other sy- and, and similarly, men who have retroperitoneal disease or bulky lymph nodes could have swelling in their extremities or pain in their pelvis as a sign of prostate cancer. Uh, other signs could be blood in the ejaculate or sometimes difficulty urinating or pain with urinating. But lots of things make a man have a difficult time urinating or pain with urination, like prostate growth, benign prostate growth is often mistaken for prostate cancer or feared to be so, but a totally different disease. So prostate that grows and obstructs the urinary tract um, could be mostly, is mostly benign, but it could be cancerous. Uh, it's just that when we see can- signs of prostate cancer, clinical signs of prostate cancer, then uh, I worry that it's too late to cure the disease at that stage. Which brings us to the next question, you know, how, how do we deal with it? If you don't know that it's there until it's until you can't treat it. Yeah. Uh, And that's where a lot of controversy comes into prostate cancer screening. (laughs) Um, And we can talk about PSA and the PSA controversy. But essentially, we have men that get a blood test called a PSA and a prostate exam. And nowadays, sometimes an MRI of the prostate and try to recognize the higher risk of prostate cancer in some individuals 
have those men go through a prostate biopsy and find prostate cancer before it shows any sign or symptom. In those cases, men can get treatment for prostate cancer uh, before they're symptomatic and have the best chance of curing disease. The challenge for us as urologists comes in eradicating prostate cancer, but maintaining every aspect of a man's quality of life. Because it's hard to tell a guy who doesn't have any symptoms that he has cancer that could take his life in 10 or 20 years. And we want to put him through some pretty, some pretty gnarly treatments now so he doesn't have a future risk of dying of cancer. So that can be very tricky. Huh. Yeah, that is, that is really interesting. Uh, so it brings up some of the, the testing uh, that you use. So you brought up PSA, the, the prostate, or sorry, the prostate-specific antigen testing. Uh, how, how exactly does that work? So the PSA is a, is a great measure of prostate metabolism. And uh, men often come to the clinic with a PSA that's elevated. Um, a PSA is found in a blood test, a simple blood test. It's a protein that generally exists in low levels in the bloodstream. And only prostate cells make PSA. So PSA as a protein is in, is in huge quantities in male ejaculate fluid. But as blood vessels course through the prostate gland, a little bit of PSA leaks into the bloodstream, and that can be picked up on any normal blood test. So we have, we have basically a normal range of where a PSA shows up. You get a, a PSA value, and if that becomes a high value, especially a younger man is, if his PSA is rising, that's more concerning, and they get referred to a urologist. If that PSA is legit, that it's elevated, then it could a PSA could be driven up because of pressure on the prostate from riding a bicycle seat or constipation or sexual activity. But prostate cancer can also cause a PSA to rise. And so uh, a PSA that's persistently high is an indication to do a biopsy of the prostate gland. But there's a lot of controversy about PSA as a test. Because I think for many years, physicians, primary care docs, urologists, and everybody treated PSA like a cancer test. That if your PSA was elevated, that you have cancer and we've got to find it and eradicate it. And a lot of men went through multiple biopsies. A lot of men with very low grade or minimal disease ended up having treatment like surgery or radiation, even at, uh, later in their lives and then had side effects from those treatments and would later say, man, I wish I never would have known about this disease because my life is worse and the treatment is worse than the disease ever would have been. And I wish I never knew about it. As we look back in the history of prostate cancer, uh, a lot of clinicians and review boards started to say, boy, maybe we shouldn't check PSA at all. We should, we should leave PSA out of the medical testing realm because of the potential to do harm. But then the flip side is without PSA, we have lots of men showing up with late stage prostate cancer and we can't cure them. We can only palliate their disease or extend their lives a little bit. And the number of men dying of prostate cancer will go up. 
So it's this really interesting debate of uh, do we screen all men for prostate cancer or we, should we be smarter about screening and be smarter about how many biopsies we do? Should we use other tests like a prostate MRI? How costly is that? What's the cost to overall medicine? How much does it cost to extend a man's life with prostate cancer? These are all fascinating questions that really, that at the base of it is this question of should we screen for prostate cancer? Should, should men get a PSA? And if so, when? And at what value should that prompt a biopsy or further workup? These questions still go on. You need to know, and your listeners should know, as a urologist, I am a PSA advocate. I think <laughs> I see men next. die of pro- <laughs> yeah. I I see men die of prostate cancer all too frequently, and so I tell men, uh, the general population of men, to start screening for prostate cancer around age 40 or 45 or 50, depending on your on your personal risk. If you have a family history screen for prostate cancer a little earlier. If you don't have a family history, then do your first screening PSAs at age 45 or 50. And then depending on what that level is, talk with your physician and check a PSA, uh, maybe as often every year, maybe as infrequent as every every three years. And after age 75, because PSA also goes up as a man ages, Usually after age 75 or after age 80, we stop checking PSAs if they've been normal because a PSA that rises with age is something we often don't want to go finding out that there's a low-grade prostate cancer there because in a, in a man of advanced age, we're just going to watch, watch him anyway and only treat him if he develops signs or symptoms of disease. There's always this balance of, under-treating or over-treating prostate cancer. If you under-treat it, you could have men die of prostate cancer. If you over-treat it, you could have men deal with the consequences of treatment and in some cases even shorten shorten their lives because of of side effects of of a surgical complication or because of complications of radiation or problems of hormone therapy. Uh, That's always this, this really interesting debate in my specialty. Yeah, that is an interesting dynamic. So how does a digital rectal exam tie into that? Or tie, oh, into, uh, tie into testing for prostate cancer? So, you know, I, I get asked the question all the time why I chose to be a urologist because <laughs> everyone associates being a urologist with putting a glove on your, fan, on your hand, some lubrication on your finger, and sticking your finger in another person's rectum anus or however you want to say it i don't want to be crude um but uh but but a rectal exam just like listening to somebody's heart and lungs is part of a medical exam just like feeling uh for lymph nodes or looking in ears feeling the prostate gland and the and the end part of the rectum in a rectal exam is a key portion of physical examination um it takes just a few seconds to do a rectal exam and feel the smooth surface of the prostate. If there's a prostatic nodule, there are a number of forms of prostate cancer that have a normal PSA. And I've I've diagnosed men with prostate cancer and biopsied them because I felt a nodule on physical exam, um, but they had a normal PSA. And have had men show advanced disease 
with a normal PSA and an abnormal prostate exam. And so those two things, uh, a PSA test and a digital rectal exam are, are ranks numbers one and two for prostate cancer early detection. There are other tests out there, more genetic specific tests, like uh, tests that look at the genes in urine and, and an MRI test that is focused to look at the prostate tissue. Uh, there are some developing specialized ultrasounds that are hoping to show uh, prostate cancers, you know, more exactly where they exist in the prostate. But uh, these other modalities are still developing in 2020. If we're talking about the general population, prostate cancer screening is a PSA and a digital rectal exam for most all men. Good to know. Good to know. Uh, so diving into how it's treated, and you, you mentioned it a little bit earlier with uh, radiation or surgery. Uh, first off, I'm curious if you use a, a, Gleason, a Gleason score. Yeah, so uh, as a man progresses, uh, he, has a prostate, he has a prostate nodule or an elevated PSA. He gets sent to a urologist. If he goes through a prostate biopsy, um, and a, to walk you through a prostate biopsy is, uh, is ultrasound guided. We use an ultrasound, just like ultrasounds show images of babies in the womb. We use an ultrasound probe, a narrow probe that sits in the rectum and visualizes the prostate gland. And then we take little needle biopsies of the prostate tissue. It's uh, a, a relatively easy thing to do. It's not super comfortable, but by using some lidocaine and numbing medication, uh, a man goes through a prostate biopsy, walks into my office, gets a biopsy done, and walks out with very little interruption of his regular life. Hmm. But if, once a prostate biopsy is done, then comes the interpretation of that biopsy that's done by a pathologist, and I get the results of that pathology of uh, that pathology report that will show me if a man has prostate inflammation or prostate enlargement, just what's called benign hyperplasia of the prostate, or some degree of prostate cancer. And the reason I say some degree of prostate cancer, because uh, generally we think of prostate cancer in low, medium, and high-risk disease. And what takes low, medium, and high-risk into play in 2020 is still primarily the Gleason score. Uh, Gleason score is named after a pathologist, Dr. Gleason, who specialized in looking at prostate tissue. And he would rank the risk of prostate tissue being prostate cancer on a scale of one to five. But in looking at hundreds of cells under the microscope, you'd see a variety of forms. And so rather than just giving it a, a one to five rank, he said that there's a majority form and a minority form and would give the majority form a rank of one to five and the minority form a rank of one to five. So in theory, you'd have a Gleason score between two and 10. Does that make sense? Yep. Like one plus one would be two and five plus five would be 10. One plus one, not, not cancer, five plus five, aggressive cancer. As the Gleason scale matured over the years, um, grades one and two only became confusing for physicians. They're, they're not cancer diagnoses. So only Gleason grade three uh, was cancerous. 
And as pathologists look at that, the lowest score that they give prostate cancer is three plus three or a total of six. And that always freaks out patients when I do a prostate biopsy and we're going over results and tell them that they have Gleason 6 disease and that they think, oh my gosh, it's a scale of one to 10, but it's actually a scale of six to 10, six being the lowest grade. So uh, I, I know it's kind of a confusing area in my specialty, and we keep on thinking that the pathologic stages or the pathologic grading is going to change. It has not yet. So Gleason grade six or three plus three is still low risk disease. Gleason grade three plus four and four plus three are medium risk disease. And Gleason grade eight, nine, and 10 are all high risk disease. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, it uh, will be interesting to see if they ever change that in the future. Um, okay, so to, to lead into the surgery versus radiation debate, I'm familiar that you do a lot of prostate surgery, and I'm assuming you don't do much radiation. So if someone were to come, a patient comes into your clinic and said he already has prostate cancer and says, hey, I watched this YouTube video. This guy says radiation is better than surgery. Um, I read a, a paper. It said there's not a big difference between surgery and radiation. How do you respond to that? What's your conversation with that patient? So um, I tell patients once they're diagnosed with prostate cancer, the first question is, should we treat this disease or watch this disease? There is the option. Most, most cancers don't have the option of observation. If you see skin cancer, you remove it. If a patient has uh, breast cancer, she gets a, she gets a cancer removal surgery and possibly chemotherapy and radiation. If you have a, you all, most cancers have a treatment protocol automatically. Prostate cancer is one of these diseases that with low grade disease, the first question we have is, should we, should we even treat this disease? Maybe this disease has a lethal potential that's very low over the next 10 years. And if a patient's in his seventies, especially if he's got heart disease or other poor grade of health, I would tell him, Hey, let's watch. We might want to consider just watching this, following your PSA, repeating your biopsy in a couple of years. Think about doing an MRI. Um, think about taking a medication to suppress prostate growth. All these things could, could keep him just living the way he is right now and not having to face a threat of prostate cancer death one, or having to face the threat of cross the side effects of treatment. So the first question is, should we treat this disease or not, or watch it? And that, uh, but if we choose to treat it, then I tell him after treatment comes along, we have a, a number of options to go after. Surgery is an option. Radiation treatment is an option. Hormone treatment is an option for advanced disease. And then there are still experimental, well, what I would think of somewhat experimental options such as uh, cryotherapy that's freezing the prostate gland or high foo high intensity focused ultrasound um, that are these are or other areas of treating prostate cancer that may come along still the mainstays for localized prostate treatment prostate cancer treatment 
our surgery, removing the prostate gland or radiation, um, treating the prostate gland with a radiation beam or radiation seeds. Um, the next thing to talk about with a patient is what are the pros and cons of both those treatments? And I don't want to go, I don't want to bore any listeners with going into this too much, but uh, the, the side effects of treatment um, are always both short-term and long-term. Short-term side effects like of surgery are pain with surgery or having to have a catheter left in for seven to 10 days. Short-term side effects of radiation can be flu-like symptoms or some urinary symptoms that bother you. The long-term side effects of both are things that we have to talk about with patients in, in greater detail and with greater patients. What's the chance of my disease coming back? What's the chance of prostate cancer returning? What is the chance that I'm going to have long-term urinary problems, like going to the bathroom often or urinary incontinence, leaking urine into a pad? What are the chances that I'm going to lose sexual function uh, or, or loss of erectile function or ejaculatory function? Um, those can be long-term effects of disease. And depending on how much cancer a guy has, how old he is, what other comorbidities he has, in other words, what other diseases he has, what's his current state of urinary function and his current state of erectile function. All of these things have to play into that conversation. In my specialty, we have what's called a cancer talk and schedule patients for a long time in clinic to go over all these details, educate them, and then we come to a decision together about what's the best treatment for that individual. Are they young enough and healthy enough and have good enough function and good enough musculature that they're going to get through surgery and heal quickly, have low risk of complications, maintain urinary function and continence, and be able to get a, a surgery that spares the nerves around their prostate where they can maintain sexual function and erectile function? Um, though, you know, if that's, if that's the guy that we're looking at, then we talk about what surgery is. If, I, if I'm looking at a guy who's not going to tolerate surgery well, or he's terrified of the possible downfalls of surgery, then we got to talk about what radiation options are there, especially if I feel like he could die of his disease in the next 10 years. Then we ought to, we ought to get on with treatment and he doesn't want surgery. Let's talk about radiation. And often I'll refer them to a radiation oncologist, somebody that specializes in radiation, to hear about that treatment modality. Uh, in fact, I tell all patients to get to get multiple opinions because I know that I'm biased. I'm a prostate surgeon, <laughs> and I see patients who are who are happy with prostate surgery and compliment me on doing a great job. It's only natural that I would tell patients who need prostate cancer treatment that if they are healthy enough, um, that that surgery would be good for them. Um, and I think that radiation oncologists have their biases as well. Uh, that they'll tell patients that they're that why they're a good candidate for radiation treatment. Um, it, the you know the short answer to your question is it is an individualized decision and a long discussion with patients. But it's also part of what I love about my job. You know, years ago, a good friend told me about going into urology. Is you is you get to to form deep and personal relationships with patients. Maybe it's because you have to educate them about really threatening disease that, that they don't even know that 
can affect them for years. Um, or maybe it's that you have to address something really embarrassing for them about sexual dysfunction or incontinence. Uh, and maybe part of me always liked to be a guy that, that kept people's secrets, that people turned to incompetence to, to talk to about their personal problems. But, um, but I really love those moments in my specialty. I love, uh, I love that, that personal intimate connection with patients, um, that, uh, that I think a lot of physicians don't get. Certainly a lot of surgeons don't have the opportunity to have that relationship. I like that a lot. I love the uh, admitted bias. You don't you don't hear that every day. Uh, awesome. Uh, so one of the last things before we finish up that I'm really curious about is just sort of a, a walkthrough of how a prostate cancer, uh, how a prostatectomy works. Uh, a quick walkthrough of what you do in your for prostate surgery. Well, once we kind of get through the discussion of of. PSA of prostate cancer from an, from a broad perspective, like how it grows very slowly, how many men will die with prostate cancer and not die of prostate cancer and of the treatment options out there and trying to look into a crystal ball down the road for five years or 10 years or 15 years and come to the decision that we're going to go ahead and do prostate surgery. I tell men to feel encouraged because 2020 we know better now how to do prostate cancer surgery than ever in the history of man. Uh, and generally, I'd say 98% of the prostate surgeries that I do in my clinic are, are done with a surgical rope. Um, robotic prostate surgery has been around for about 20 years, really in mainstream practice for the last, oh, probably 17 to 15 years. Coming out really at the time where I finished training, and I feel really lucky to have trained uh, in a place that taught me to do robotics, but also at the timing of where the first part of my residency training was all open prostate surgery, and the latter part of my residency training was heavy into robotic surgery. So what I tell a patient to expect is that they're going to come to surgery, um, uh, they're going to go to sleep under anesthesia. And we're going to place six little incisions on their belly where through those six incisions, we inflate the abdomen and place little instruments called ports. Uh, these are little airtight accesses to the inside of the abdomen. Uh, that's minimally invasive surgery. And then we use, uh, we use a surgical robot that is a really fascinating piece of engineering and machinery that is controlled by the surgeon. Basically, a, sur a, a surgical robot has four working arms. One controls a camera that looks in the body, and the other three uh, working arms are instruments that I control at a virtual console. I tell patients, and honestly, it's a little bit of bragging, I tell them that I control two of those arms with my feet and two with my hands. And though that's true, it makes me sound a lot more skilled than I than I am. But um, but there are two other ports. Those two other ports are done are used by my assistant for passing suture or doing some suctioning. Uh, and once we get all that set up ready, and we put the patient in a, in a position where the pelvis is exposed, then we do the careful dissection of the prostate, where we have to get into the retroperitoneum. We get into the space on top of the bladder and in front of the bladder and behind the bladder 
and above the rectum, spatially, if you think about where the prostate is, it's like trying to get, it's like, it's like trying to get to something at the bottom of a, of a Coke bottle. You know, you're down in this tiny space all the way at the bottom of the body. Anyway, doing that dissection uh, has a lot of potential pitfalls. There are a lot of blood vessels. There are surrounding organs. There are things to be careful about. Um, but ultimately, we get down to the prostate gland. And then we separate the prostate gland from its attachments. Attachments to the prostate are the vas deferens. The, uh, the tube that's, re that's released when you do a vasectomy comes all the way through the body and attaches to the prostate. We have to detach the bladder from the prostate, and we have to detach the urethra from the prostate as the urethra exits the body. And then we have to detach the prostate from its blood supply and the nerves that course next to the prostate, uh, these nerves that help maintain urinary continence and, uh, and potency and erectile function. Once all of that dissection is done, the prostate is, I put it in a, in a little plastic bag that my assistant puts into the, into the abdomen, and then we, pull the, we retrieve the prostate at the end of the case. Um, but the job's not done yet because the end, of the, the end of the bladder, there's a hole that's in the base of the bladder where the prostate used to be, has to be sewn to the, to the stump of the urethra. Hmm. And uh, so we do that robotically as well using stitching to sew, sew those two cylinders together um, and then place a catheter across that connection for a week or so. Uh, and that's the course of healing. About um, two-thirds of my patients stay overnight in the hospital. About a third will actually go home the same day oh, wow. these days, which is amazing. Yeah. Um, conventional prostate surgery done through a larger incision would keep a patient in the, in the hospital for anywhere from one to three days, um, you know, and I tell patients about blood loss risk, which is less with surgery, uh, with robotic surgery than it used to be. We talk about what are the risks of incontinence and erectile function. Uh, and, uh, and those numbers have improved dramatically with robotic surgery. It's a reason I still do surgery and, and have happy patients resulting from those procedures. Uh, you know, those are results that we're really proud of. Love it. Uh, that was cool. That was cool to think through and uh, and visualize. Uh, something that I'll never forget from watching a prostatectomy was uh, to not mess with the the apex. That uh, if you <laughs> if you mess up the apex, you know it'll lead to incontinence and uh, uh, lack of sexual function. Uh, well, and also that's the spot where that's the spot where prostate cancer can be left behind in the body. Right at the tip of the prostate, that's kind of where everything's coming together. You have the muscles of urinary function, the nerves of erectile function, and the tip of the prostate that can still harbor cancer is right there as well. Everything's right close together within a few millimeters of each other. Um, that's it. That's, it is truly the most challenging surgery, I think, in, uh, in urologic surgical practice. Wow. Fascinating. Well, uh, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Fisher. I loved uh, walking through all this and, and learning all about prostate cancer. And uh, thank you so much for your time and all, all that you do to treat patients. Jake, it's my pleasure. I really, you know, it's, I've, been waiting year, I've been waiting a couple of years to be on your podcast. I've watched <laughs> you interview a lot of people. As your dad, uh, I may be, I, 
I don't know how many of your listeners listen to every podcast that you make, but uh, but I can say that I have listened to every single one. I don't even know if your mom has listened to every one, uh, but I but I enjoy them. I'm proud of you. You do a great job. Uh, anybody who's listening to this, I would say jump onto that podcast address, uh, subscribe and like it, and go back and listen to some of the other things. It's so true. I uh, I learned I learned a ton about a ton about government listening to Derek Brown. Uh, I learned a ton about COVID nineteen listening to the docs you had on about that. Anyway, it's a it's an honor to be part of the podcast, son. You do oh, a great job. That was a heartfelt message. Thanks so much. <laughs> <laughs> bye bye.